You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. It is amazing to read the Bible and to just notice and observe how it uses the word parent or parenting. Uh, It comes to us in at least three different ways through the scriptures. Uh, So let me just run through these ways that this word parent is used or uh, this idea of motherhood or fatherhood is used. One is the idea of spiritual parents. Think about Paul and Timothy. They're a good sort of illustration of this. If you read Paul's letters, you're going to find him saying things like this throughout his letters. Uh, Here is Timothy, my son in the faith. Uh, When Paul looks at their relationship, uh, he sees himself as a spiritual father. Timothy sees him as a spiritual father, and Paul looks at Timothy and sees uh, Timothy as a spiritual son. Uh, Paul has just owned uh, sort of Timothy's life in such a way where he's saying, I'm just glad to be a presence in his life that would speak the truth in love to him, be affirming to him, be a help to him. It's an amazing way the word parent is used, and it's one of the things I hope all of us in this room would aspire to to have that sort of presence and to, to be that sort of a person for other people. And if you're over 50 in the room, I just want you to look around this room for a moment and look at all of the young people in it. The Lord has given you an amazing opportunity to be that sort of a presence in the lives of people. And gosh, we're just praying that the Lord would put aspirations in you to be that sort of a person, a, a spiritual parent. Uh, And then there's also in the scriptures, biological parents. So spiritual parents and biological parents. And you uh, see this from the opening pages of the scriptures. Uh, Do you remember our first parents? They're created, put in a garden, and God looks at our first parents and says, he really blesses them. He blesses them by saying, be fruitful and multiply. From the opening pages of the scriptures, we are... um, It is revealed to us sort of the the Bible's vision of one man and one woman coming together, pledging their life to one another for the rest of their days. And in the context, the Bible would call marriage for that husband and that wife to have children. And not just a few children, but a lot of children. That's sort of the biblical vision of of marriage and family and, and children. And it's ironic that we live in a day and an age where if you have um, this sort of biblical vision for, yes, we want kids and a lot of kids, uh, in a lot of ways, you are very countercultural. Just this last week, the New York Times published an article that was talking about the birth rate in America. And this last year, it has fallen to an all-time low in America, all the way down to 1.64. That is scary territory for any country. Uh, and uh, just think about the replacement rate is 2.1. But but it's showing something about our culture that there is a steady sort of a walk toward seeing children as a burden to endure, uh, endure more than a blessing to receive from God. But followers of Jesus, the, the church of Jesus Christ does not see kids that way. We see kids as a blessing from the Lord. So we are pro-family, we are pro-children, and a lot of them, biological parents, spiritual parents, biological parents. And the third way we see the word parent used in the scriptures is what we might call adoptive parents. Now, the beginning of the New Testament is amazing for multiple reasons. The main reason is we get to see face-to-face the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, It's amazing when you you open the New Testament and begin to read the Gospels. But it's also amazing because we get to meet Jesus' adoptive 
dad, Joseph. He's an unsung hero in the New Testament. And Joseph, he is a picture of that third use of the word parent. Now, all three of these uses of the word parent, uh, spiritual parenting, biological parenting, and adoptive parenting, all of those are amazing gifts from our good dad. Each of those are amazing gifts. And today, I want to, in some ways, just zero in on and, and zoom into that third use of the word parents, adoptive parents. I want to explore that sort of theme and uh, take a step or two down that lane with you today. So let me start by asking this question. What is God like? What is God like? Uh, the question is not, what do you want God to be like? The question is, what is God like? And the only way we can have a right answer to that question, the only thing that will keep us from forming a God who will fit our preferences, the only way that can happen is by opening up the Bible and reading it. The Bible, in part, is God's revelation to us of who he is. This is God, through the scripture, saying, um, here I am. This is, this is me. Get to know me. What is God like? The only reliable answer you're ever going to get to is to open the Bible and read it, asking the question, who does God reveal himself to be? Now, I want to just read a couple of, of passages from the Psalms and just to help us answer the question, well, what is God like? Psalm 9, 9. The Lord is a stronghold. That's one of the ways the Bible describes God as a stronghold or a refuge. And for who is he a stronghold? The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 35, 10. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? So who is like God? What is God like? Here's what God is like. Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Psalm 109, 30 and 31. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Now, why would I praise God in the midst of the throng? For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from the one who condemns his soul to death. Where are you going to find God in the world? If you just move out into the world and ask the question, where are you going to find God? Where is that? This text answers it. Right there at the hand of the needy. Right there beside the vulnerable. Or how about Psalm 68, verse 5? Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isn't that amazing? This is the name God goes by. You can just call me father of the fatherless. You can just call me protector of widows. There's a name that when you think of me, you can just remember that name. Isn't that amazing that God would identify himself like that? So what is God like? Well, here's one thing that we can say about God. When we're answering what is God like, we, we know at least this much about God. We have a God who values the vulnerable. We have a God like that who values the vulnerable. And the commands of God, every command you see, they reflect the character of God. So it's not a surprise to us when we come to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, that we would read a command like this. 
And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, what is God saying in a text like that? He's saying your love for the vulnerable is is an expression. It's one expression of your love for me. How you care for the vulnerable is one expression of how much you care about me, if you care about me. So I don't want you to, um, I don't want you to, to, to take all the food in your field. I would like for you to leave a little bit on the edges. Don't go to the edges. I want you to leave that at the edges so the vulnerable can eat. This is God saying, part of you loving me is forgoing what could be yours for what needs to be theirs, for what needs to be the vulnerable. Deuteronomy 24, it's no surprise that we would see a passage like this. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So think about what God's commanding here. He's commanding us not to oppress the refugee, the fatherless, the the orphan, or the widow, oftentimes those three, the refugee, orphan, and widow, they're the triad that you oftentimes see uh, see together in the scriptures. Uh, Together, those three sort of groups of people represent the most vulnerable in a society. So he's saying, don't oppress the most vulnerable. No, rather than that, protect them, defend them, help them. Now, why would God say that? Here's why, because I value the vulnerable. And if you want proof that I value the vulnerable people of God, Deuteronomy 24, God is saying to them, uh, I rescued you out of your vulnerability. I delivered you from the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. You were the vulnerable one that I rescued. So now just reflect my heart. God is here saying, loving me means embracing what I love. In particular, my heart for the vulnerable. To love me is to love them. Now, that takes us to Isaiah 58, to the passage you just heard read. It's an amazing, it is an amazing chapter. It's one that I hope you'll return to periodically because it really is a text that I think we all need to see. It reveals things about us and the heart of God that we need to constantly be confronted with. Let me just take this passage in three sections, in three parts. Part one is the problem God sees Part two is the people God wants, and part three is the reward God gives. That's our three movements, and let's start with the first one, the problem God sees. The problem God sees. Look at verses two and three of Isaiah 58. These two verses show us five amazing things about the people God is addressing. Five amazing things about the people of God. Look at what they were doing in verses two and three. Uh, They were seeking God. That's a good thing, isn't it? They were seeking God. Secondly, they were delighting to know God's ways. Thirdly, they were asking God for just decisions. Fourthly, they were delighting in the nearness of God. 
It's an amazing, great thing. Number five, they were fasting and afflicting themselves for God. Now, if you were to move into a new city and you were trying to find a church, if those five things are the things you saw in a church family, you would be like, yes, give me that church. I am in with those people. Those are all wonderful things. Take, take fasting as an example. It's a way for the people of God to express their longing for God. Jesus, I want you. It's a way of saying to God, we, our hearts, our hearts are feasting not just on food, but on you, our God. The fasting, this is what they're doing here. But God sees through what seems so right all the way down to what is actually wrong in these people. And you see what's wrong in verse two. Uh, look at that little phrase, four words, verse two, as if they were as if they were, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God, as if they were. This passage reminds us that it's not what we appear to be, but what we actually are that matters most to God. God saw through their spiritual veneer all the way down to their spiritual dysfunction. And you see that dysfunction in verses three and four. Look at the second half of verse three. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. That's amazing, isn't it? They are fasting, but it's not for God. It's for their own selfish pleasure. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And in the day of your fast, like, God, I'm all about you. In the day of that fast, you're oppressing all of your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day, listen to what God says, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Here is the problem that God sees. Their love of God was divorced from their usefulness in the world. Maybe you could think of their problem like this. They had a privatized faith. Now, what does it mean to have a privatized faith? Here was the way they saw God and their lives. It went something like this. Here, here's, here's my paradigm for thinking about my life with God. It's me and God, and that alone. And that alone matters. It's me and it's God, and that alone matters. There's nothing else that matters. Now, the first part of that phrase is amazing. Uh, it's me and God. Yes to that. Uh, this takes us right to the heart of Christianity. It's not what someone else thinks about God. It's what you think about the person of Jesus. You and Jesus is where it all starts. Right, right. It, it, Christianity is about God coming down in the person of Jesus, entering into our soul, making himself real to our heart. There is nothing more important in your life and mine than experientially knowing Jesus. So, so yes to it's me and God. The problem is that last phrase. It's me and God, and that alone matters. God is in Isaiah 58 saying, no, that is not true. Your usefulness in the world also matters. See, here was the problem with the people of Israel. 
They had divorced the first commandment, love God, from the second commandment, and love your neighbor as yourself. They had divorced those two things. And this privatized faith, it's me and God and that alone matters, this privatized way of relating to God was actually offensive to God. Now, let's bring this to 21st century, your life and my life today. What was tempting to God's people then is equally tempting to God's people now. To you, to me, to our lives collectively together, we're equally tempted to believe it's me and it's God and that alone matters. That's all that, that, that matters. But Isaiah is reminding us that No, that's not all that matters. He's reminding us that if the way we love God doesn't move us to love others, to move into the world making their problems our problems, to move into the world helping human beings flourish around us, if the way we love God doesn't move us to love others, then the love of God we profess sickens the God we profess to love. That's what Isaiah 58 is reminding us of. This is why in the New Testament, James 1.27 is in the Bible. And James tells us religion, that's a way of relating to God, right? It's, it's God and it's us and something else, right? So he's saying religion, the way that we're relating to God, the way that we see God in our life and the world, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, good religion, what God wants from us is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1 is a very Isaiah 58-ish moment in the New Testament. It's where, again, the scriptures are reminding us that loving our neighbor, especially the most vulnerable among them, is one way we express our love of God. It's one way it's expressed. We love God and we love our neighbor. They're not divorced between one another. So this is the problem God sees. Now the people God wants. The people God wants. We all want to come to God in a way that pleases God, right? We all want to come to God in a way that when we come to him like this, God looks at us and says, that's amazing. Yes, keep doing that. We, we all want that. And this passage shows us how. Look at verses six and seven. Is not this the fast that I choose? God is saying, is not not this the sort of life that I want from my people? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God is showing us an unprivatized way to see our life and our faith. In God's economy, it's us and God and our neighbor. It's us and God, and God is saying here, your neighbor matters too. A love of God is meant to lead us into the world, not to hide from the problems in this world, but to be a help, to make other people's problems our problem. A right love of God leads you so close into the life of vulnerable people 
that you actually become vulnerable yourself. That it actually costs us, you, me. It actually hurts us. It's actually painful for us. A love of God is meant to lead us into this world, finding vulnerable people who that is true. Their vulnerability has now become ours to the point that we have become vulnerable ourselves. Think about, again, the essence of Christianity is, yes, a love of Jesus, the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's people with an open heart coming to Jesus, expressing their love and adoration for this God who has saved them. Yes to that. And... That love of Jesus is others-oriented, seeking the, the renewal of the world, helping other people, vulnerable people around us flourish. I love what one pastor says about this. He says it like this. He says, Christianity must be deeply internal and personal. Yes. Yes to that. We have to actually know God deeply internal and personal. But, he says... If it stops there, it's just a spare time hobby. The symbol of our faith is a cross. And the message of the cross is love pouring itself out for others. That's what the gospel is, isn't it? It's love pouring itself out to others. That's the symbol of the, of the, the, the faith. It's, it's the symbol of our life, really. It is saying, all of us who are saying yes to the cross are saying yes to a life where we are pouring ourselves out for others. This is the people that God wants. Now, I want to linger here and take a moment to apply this. If, if this is true, if a love of God expresses itself in finding vulnerable people and then making their vulnerability so near and close to us that we actually become vulnerable ourselves, making their problem our problem, then we need to take a step back and ask, well, who is vulnerable around us? Who is that? And the answer to that is so multifaceted. We could apply this text in literally a hundred different ways this morning. We could talk about it in terms of refugees. We could talk about that in terms of the homeless. We could talk about that in terms of what's happening for many who are living in urban centers. We could apply that to single moms. We could apply that to widows. We could apply that to children who are in the womb so many of which are being aborted. We could apply that in all of those different ways. But I, I wanna use this morning to apply this text in a very specific way. One way that we value the vulnerable, that, that we become the people that God wants, well, one way that we value the vulnerable is through foster care and adoption. That is one way we value the vulnerable. Now, I wanna just try to give some handlebars on that. What are three things we can do if we're going to value the vulnerable, in particular, in this, this way, specific way, through foster care and adoption? Three things. Uh, let me just run through these very briefly. Number one, we first have to see the need. See the need. Let's think about it in a global context first. Although the, the number's hard to, to nail down uh, in a specific way, I think that the number 150 million, 150 million, 150 million children is a good estimate to describe the worldwide orphan problem. 150 
million. That's one half of the U.S. population. That is mind-boggling. 150 million. Now, it's easy for us to think, who live in America, it's easy for us to think, well, we don't really have like an orphan issue here. That, that's, we're really don't, we don't have that here. It's, it's in other places around the world. Uh, and that would be a wrong assumption. It's here as well. And our orphan crisis uh, finds its way into and is, in, in, is intertwined with our foster system. And currently in America right now, there are roughly 450,000 children in our foster system. 450,000. Of those roughly 450,000, somewhere in the neighborhood of 120,000 kids right now are currently awaiting adoption. 120,000 children who just are in need of a home and a family to belong to and to be intertwined with. 120,000. Now let's get more granular and think about this in our state. There are right now in the state of Texas, 30,269 children in foster care, over 30,000 children. And of those uh, roughly 30,000 children, 7,140 children are currently awaiting adoption. In our state, over 7,000 children awaiting adoption. More granular, DFW area. There are right now in the DFW area, 5,371 children in our foster system. And of those 5,371 children, there are over 1,000, 1,051 children right now, like in our backyard, right here where we're all doing life. There are 1,051 children available for adoption. And when it comes to the foster system, it's, it's good to know the difficulty involved. Uh, each year, roughly 18,000 uh, children age out of foster care. And of those 18,000, 50% won't have a high school degree or a GED. And almost half, 42%, will be convicted of a violent crime. And 20%, at some point in their life, will be homeless. Part of what that is showing us is that those in the foster system often are on tracks leading their lives to very difficult places. Those in the foster system are in a very vulnerable, hard spot. Now, I can't hear those things, those, those numbers, those percentages and statistics without my heart just aching for that. Just blowing up and, and the Lord plowing my heart just to, for it to break and ache over, over that situation that's right here. And I just can't help but to, but to think the Lord has some of us in a position today where he just wants to break our hearts freshly about these things. He wants us to, to put ourselves in the shoes of these children so that we can feel this and, and see this in the way that would, would reflect his heart, that, that we could ache over these things like his heart aches over these things. The first thing we can do is see the need. The second thing after we see the need is we meet the need. 
God's people are God's plan to protect the fatherless. God's people are the plan. The government is not God's plan. God's people are God's plan to protect the fatherless. As a follower of Jesus, we have, we have received and experienced the heart of God. Isaiah, or Ephesians 1, he has chosen us for adoption. He set his affection on us and brought us into his family. And that heart that we have received, we then reflect back to the world. As God's image bears, we move out into the world reflecting what God is like. His, his huge heart for the vulnerable, in particular vulnerable children, we move out into the world reflecting his huge heart. It's our chance to say to the world, this is what our God is like. The God that we serve looks like this. He is like this. And with that said, I want to make a huge ask of everyone in the room. And we do this uh, once a year, maybe even up to twice a year, depending on the year. But we do this on a consistent basis. And here's the question. Here's the ask that, that I'm just asking every person that makes up our church family to, uh, to entertain and to get before the Lord with. It's this question. Jesus, how do you want me involved in the care of vulnerable children? How do you want me involved in adoption and foster care? What, what would you want from me? And it's, it's coming to God with an open heart, not a closed heart, but an open heart, a closed heart. We come to God with that question, but we already know the answer before we ask, right? That's coming to God with a closed heart. With an open heart, we are saying, God, my life is in your hands. It's, it's your life. So God, you tell me, what do you want? I am a yes to whatever you say, oh God. God, how do you want me involved in the care of vulnerable children? Do you want me to meet the need that I see by adoption, by, by foster care? Now, let me be clear. God is not calling everyone at Stonegate to adopt or to foster. God is not going to call, he's going to call some of us to that, but not all of us to that. But he is calling every one of us to be engaged. Adoption and foster care are not just sort of an activity for a selective few. This is a calling for a whole church. So it's, God, how do you want me involved? What would that involvement look like? And for many, you're not going to be on the front lines adopting and, and fostering, but you're going to be supporting in all the ways needed. Everything from funding to meals to rest. I mean, just all the ways needed to come around families who are on the front line. Jesus, how would you want me? If you're, if you're married in the context of a family, how would you want our family to, to be involved in the care of vulnerable children? Now, when you came in, you should have received a card. Do you see that there? should be on the seat that you sat down on. Now, I just want to invite you to take that card for a moment to look at the back of that card. Uh, that card looks something like this. And on the back, it has a place for your information. And I just want to encourage you to make sure you throw that information in there. And then it just has a way for you to wrestle with that question and to let us know where that wrestling is falling. What is the Lord asking for you? What would the Lord have for you? What is it that, that he wants from your life? 
And it's got options there on the next steps, everything from to foster, uh, to adopt. Maybe it's, it's more of a, of a of behind the scenes sort of a way of, of, of serving in other ways. Uh, maybe it's respite care. Maybe it's jumping on our orphan care team. Maybe it's, it's that way of jumping into the care of vulnerable children. But we just want to give you a way to, to respond to Jesus and then to let us know what the Lord is saying to you. Uh, on the other side, it's got a place we would just love to know your story. If you are adopted uh, or maybe you're a parent that has adopted, we would just love to know those things. We would love to maybe even capture some of that story story at some point in the future. So I'm going to ask everyone in our church family to take this card and even now to begin to pray over this card and to ask the Lord, what is it that you would want for me? And then to make sure you get this card back to us at the end of the service. So we see the need and we meet the need. And thirdly, if we're going to be the people God wants, we have to remember our story. So we see the need, meet the need, and then we remember our story. According to the Bible, the orphan problem is not primarily physical. It is primarily spiritual. As desperate as the plight of physical orphans are, the plight of spiritual orphans is even worse. Think about the the storyline of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents sin against God. And with that sin, God cast them out of the garden. God cast them out of his home and out of his family. We, along our first parents, along with the entire human race, in that moment became spiritual orphans. And our estrangement from God will eventually lead to, if something doesn't happen, it will eventually lead to an eternal estrangement, an eternal separation from God. But God, being rich in mercy, has done everything needed to remedy the worldwide, all-inclusive, every single human person, orphan problem. God, out of love and concern for spiritual orphans like us, sent his son Jesus to live the life that we should have lived but didn't, to die the death that in light of our sin we should have died. On the cross, it is God saying, I I love you so much. You, a spiritual orphan, I love you so much that I would lose my beloved son Jesus to make you one. I would sacrifice my beloved son Jesus to save you. I would cast out my beloved son Jesus to bring you in. That's the good news of Jesus. Uh, I share this story periodically when we talk about these sorts of issues, but years ago, I heard a pastor share a story that I think just, in a lot of ways, just captures what all of our story is in Jesus. Uh, And he had a couple in his church that they were at the final stages of adopting a uh, a baby. Uh, Everything was kind of set and ready to go. They were just waiting for this little baby uh, to be born. And in the middle of that waiting, right at the very end, they got a chilling phone call. Uh, The baby they had planned to adopt had arrived, but that little baby arrived with serious health problems. And they had one day to make a decision. Are we going to continue forward with this adoption or not? So that night, this couple went to bed. And as they slept, the lady had a dream. And in that dream, there was a big stadium full of people. 
And uh, there was a, a stage in the middle of this huge stadium and they would bring uh, little children up onto this stage and they would hold these uh, children up in front of this crowd and someone would stand up in, in the crowd and say, yes, I want that one. Yes, I want that baby. And then the whole crowd would just erupt in applause. And they would bring the next one up and somebody would stand up and say, yes, I want to adopt that child. Yes, I'm in. Yes. And the crowd would just erupt in applause. And then all of a sudden, they brought up an unlovely baby with all sorts of problems. And the crowd was absolutely silent. No one stood up and looked at that baby with all those problems and said, yes. Absolute silence. And then in her dream, it was as if the camera zoomed into the face of this little baby and she recognized, that baby is me. I am the unlovely baby with all sorts of problems. And about that time, it zooms back out and all of a sudden, Jesus stands up in the crowd and looks at that little unlovely baby with all kinds of problems and says, yes, I want that one. She is mine. Yes, give her to me. And friends, if you're in Christ, that's your story. You are the unlovely baby that God has said, from the beginning of time, before there even was such a thing as time, I have set my affection on you. I choose you. That's your story. And may we remember our story, see the need, meet the need, and remember our story. Isaiah 58, and we're finished here. The problem God sees, the people God wants, and lastly, the reward that God gives. I want to just end by pointing you to the promises of God for all of those who will move out into the world, getting around vulnerable people to the point that it makes you vulnerable. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's costly. It's, it's all those things. But here are the promises of God for you. And this is just where the Bible is so paradoxical. The Bible is holding this paradox up for us in a text like Isaiah 58. That if you, will, if you will pour yourselves out for vulnerable people, it will lead to the fullness of life. Isn't that crazy? You pouring yourself out leads to fullness. So just listen to these amazing promises out of Isaiah 58, starting in verse 8. Then, that then is after you have poured yourself out for the sake of vulnerable people. You've made their problem your problem. You're stepping all the way into their life. Then, shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, 
and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then, if you do that, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you, you who are doing this, moving out into the world toward vulnerable people, and you shall be like a watered garden. Who could use some of that this morning? And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Stonegate, may that be true of us, amen? May we receive and believe these promises And may they move us out into the world so that we are known as a people who repair broken walls and restore torn up streets, making this broken world just a bit more like heaven. Amen? Will you pray with me? I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful. This is a chance for you to get that question before the Lord. God, what what would you have for me? What would you have for our family? How would you want us to be engaged in the care of vulnerable children? Be a great time to be looking at the back of that card, just asking the Lord to show you. How would you want us engaged? How would you want me engaged? I was just thinking about this on the way uh, to church this morning. It's amazing to think how a moment like this, just an honest question that you're asking to the Lord, God, how would you want me involved? How a moment like this can change the trajectory of human lives of your life, of that vulnerable child that the Lord might be aiming your life toward. It's amazing how a moment like this changes all of that. I mean, our goal is we want to meet the need of a human being so that one day they could meet Jesus. The whole trajectory changed. What would the Lord have for you? And maybe you're in the room today or you're watching there online today and the Lord has brought you here today to remind you of your story. That you're the little baby that Jesus has stood up to and up for and said, I want them. I choose them. For some, this is the moment where God has brought you to this moment so that you could respond to his initiative. 
So you could respond to him today to turn from your sin and throw your life upon him. To hold up your life to him and say, God, I am yours. I am trusting Jesus. Yes to Jesus. And if that's you, you can call out to God in the best way you know how today. God would just love to rescue and redeem you and save you and bring you into his family, make you an adopted son, daughter of his. So, oh God, would you meet us now? Speak to this room, show us. God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to be the people that you desire us to be. So shape us, mold us, give us hearts that are open enough to ask honest questions and then to listen to you. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.